The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So continuing uh, reflections on the Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path. I always have to check when I've been away for a while, where did I get to? <laughs> and so um, we're in the middle of um, exploring in the Eightfold Path, we're in the middle of exploring the Sila section, the section on ethical conduct. And um, we've explored wise speech and a chunk of wise action. Um, and so today I'd like to explore... Um, the rest of wise action, the, the peace around uh, refraining from sexual misconduct. And I think also going into wise livelihood. <clears throat> so I just like to, um, again, kind of, I like to put it all in context each time I speak about ethics because it uh, it is a, a kind of... Um, area in our culture that we have often a, a kind of conflicted relationship with. Not that we, that we want to be going around, um, you know, hurting people, but there's some way in which we've taken um, ethics uh, and morality as being something imposed on us, a kind of a um, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. And sometimes we find in our own exploration of topics that there are different views about what's right and wrong and what's good and bad. And so we may feel in conflict with our culture, we may feel in conflict with um, even the laws at times uh, around um, ethical conduct. And so um, I like to kind of frame this from the perspective of the path, which is the, uh, the teaching on ethics is really a pragmatic teaching. Um, the the um, the purpose of the ethical conduct is to support us in uh, moving away from suffering. The movements of mind that lead to suffering, greed, aversion, delusion, confusion, uh, often um, can, let's say, can motivate unskillful action in the world, harming action in the world. And if we are interested in reducing suffering in our own um, lives, reducing the kind of uh, ways in which greed, aversion, and delusion rebound on us, as well as the ways greed, aversion, and delusion rebound on or or are playing out in our culture, then um, these statements of what's skillful and unskillful in terms of ethical conduct are useful guidelines for us because much, most of the time, or much of the time, <clears throat> um, when we are motivated to do these particular actions, and the list of uh, actions to avoid are in wise speech, refraining from false speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, and then idle chatter. And that idle chatter one has a slightly different flavor to it because we can, we can have idle chatter that's not actually uh, um, actively creating harm. And yet the Buddha points back to, or the teachings point back to, that idleness uh, often coming from non-connection um, with what's actually happening, a kind of a delusional state of mind. And so that one's really pointing to, to, um, uh, to not being disconnected from the world. And, and as we talked about when we talked about idle chatter, there are times when um, what's seemingly idle chatter is actually serving a purpose. It's serving a purpose of connecting somebody, connecting to somebody that you don't know very well. And so we, we do need to come back to what's the underlying motivation to all of these. And I'd say with the first three, false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, there's a good, um, a really good chance that greed or aversion are underlying those. <coughs> and then in um, wise action, the um, aspects 
to avoid are to refrain from killing, to refrain, and this is intentional um, killing. So, you know, n- knowing the the teachings are are phrased, um, you have to know that there's a being, uh, and you have to um, uh, intentionally intend for that being to be be deprived of life, whether uh, you're uh, by your own action or by enjoining somebody else to act to. Uh, to take that life. And so refraining from killing, refraining from taking what's not given. And again, we have to know that, that this is th- something that belongs to another. And so there's, again, it points back to the intentional aspect to deprive someone from life, to to uh, take somebody's property, you know, knowingly know that it's theirs. And then this, um, this third one, to refrain from uh, sexual misconduct, which is one we'll go into today. And then the the, the wise livelihood. Um, you know, we could say probably the easiest way to frame wise livelihood is um, a livelihood that does not um, require us to break the precepts of wise speech uh, or uh, the other precepts of wise action. And so, so we'll just we'll go into into those. Um, so the 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 these actions that we are asked to refrain from, it's kind of like we could think of this as mindfulness spells. If we're getting ready to do something that is against these actions, or or to take up these actions, it's a really good idea to stop and reflect. What else is going on here? Is greed, aversion, delusion being expressed here? There was something else I wanted to bring in as a reflection before I go in. Um, it seems to have vanished. <laughs> Refraining from sexual misconduct, um, the definition, I'll read the definition in the, in the suttas just to start. Oh, no. Oh, here was the, here was the broader one. Oh, good. I'm glad I remembered it. <laughs> um, so um, there was one, there's one story at the time of the Buddha of um, a monk who uh, joined, a, a person who joined the, the Buddha, Buddha's order and uh, he was a little bit um, slow, you know, not as intelligent perhaps, didn't have a good memory. Um, I, the word they used, something like dullard or slow-witted, something like that. And um, he had a lot of trouble remembering all the rules because there's hundreds of rules that the, the monks have to follow. And the Buddha uh, ordained him and, and, and said... There's just one rule I want you to remember, and that is non-harming. And that's really the foundation of all of the uh, cultivation of sila, of ethical conduct in this practice. And so this, this is where we keep coming back to, is like non-harming. Is, is this action going to cause harm? And I think in the last weeks, as I talked about this, I did speak about the Buddhist teachings to his son at the age of seven, really an ethical teaching that he offered to his son to reflect before, during, after acting. Is this going to cause harm? Is it causing harm? Did it cause harm? Actually, the word is is a little more subtle. It's did it cause affliction? Is it going to cause affliction? And so to reflect on how your actions ripple out into the world as a way of exploring this section of the, of the Eightfold Path. And so I, I like that, you know, uh, just one rule to remember, non-harming. And so in terms of exploring, refraining from sexual misconduct, the language that's used in the suttas, which I'll read in just a minute, um, it seems, it, it is actually, not seems, it is quite um, contextual to the time of the Buddha. And so if we were to take these, these suggestions as, um, uh, you know, as, as just like this has to apply in our culture too, 
it, it, it doesn't really make that much sense. And so I think we need to come back to that exploration of non-harming again around, around sexual actions. So the, the suttas mostly describe it as refraining from adultery. So you're in a, a committed uh, marriage relationship and uh, there's definitions of adultery. And the, it's interesting to me that in this description... Let's see. There was another another definition. Let's see. Different translations of this offer different um, kind of subtle meanings. And in the two that I have here, neither one of them uses this word. But another translation uh, commented or said should not... Um, engage in unlawful sexual activity. And so that right there brings it into the convention because the, there is an understanding in the, in the overall trajectory of the Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist teachings of a difference between um, conventional law and um, kind of what might be called more natural law. I also spoke about this early on when when we opened the discussion around um, ethical conduct, that the ethics of our Buddhist path is really pointing to the non-harming aspect, that when we we look into uh, how our hearts feel when we harm someone, there is this kind of natural um, reverberation in in, in our... um, our system is designed, in effect, to resonate in empathy with other beings, if unless that is is closed down by delusion, or anger, or greed. Our heart will resonate in sympathy or in empathy with other beings, and so the um, the feeling that happens in our heart when we are aware and connected, when there's there's harm that we are perpetuating we feel it we also feel it when we see others perpetuating harm on others we feel it there's a there's a quality in the heart of kind of uh, offness and this this to me is really the ethical compass that guides us it's a natural response in the heart it's a human response in the heart and so that's that's more the natural ethics is, is is attuning to that natural empathetic response that definitely gets clouded over by greed, by aversion, by delusion. May even in some people um, actually be clouded over by um, um, miswirings in the brain. You know, some people seem to um, be born without that empathetic response. And they don't seem to be able to learn it either. But that's not a very big percentage of us. So um, um, so that's the, the kind of more natural ethics. And then there's this distinction that laws... Um, laws may be... Um, um, in line with that natural ethics, kind of um, orthogonal, sometimes even counter to that natural ethics, or the laws may be more, um, you know, just neutral in respect to that ethics. And so it's interesting to me that one of the one of the translations actually used that word lawful, which which um, brings definitely brings in the conventions of the day. <coughs> so the um, the definitions that I have here don't use that word, but they say abandoning sexual sensual misconduct. Oh, and the other piece about this definition in the suttas is that it's strictly about men. There is no there is no indication of of how women should engage. Uh, whether this means that there's more restrictions on women or no restrictions on women, hard to say, but it's a little bit odd. <laughs> Other later parts of the tradition actually bring in um, um, 
things that point to how a woman should engage um, or not engage. Uh, So abandoning misconduct, and here it's he abstains from sensual misconduct. He does not get sexually involved with those who are protected by their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their relatives, or their dharma. Those with husbands, those who entail punishments, or even those crowned with flowers by another man. So that's that's someone who is engaged. So um, basically... um, there's a, a, a set of people that men are, a set of people that men are enjoined not to have intercourse with. So this is, again, it's very um, contextual. And um, it, feels, it feels to me like it's not that, not that much of uh, what works for us in our culture is necessarily reflected in this. One thing I would say, though, is, um, um, you know, this this does not this this rule here. I mean, it, again, in line with the culture and the time of the Buddha, does not prevent um, polygamy. Does not prevent having um, um, sexual relationships with more than one person at a time for men. The convention was for women that uh, it was unlawful to have intercourse with anyone other than her husband. Uh, so for women, it meant monogamy. For men, uh, in terms of the law, I think. In, but for men, it meant um, yeah, courtesans were fine. Um, someone, yes. So anyway, so that so that's that's a piece of it that that might be worth bringing in. That this uh, notion of sexual misconduct does not include necessarily this idea of single partner. And that's, a, that's a piece of our own culture in certain aspects of our own culture that monogamy is, is held to a particular standard. Um, so um, again, I think that the most important piece for, for us to reflect on in terms of this precept is non-harming. What are, what are the... Um, agreements that we have with each other. Um, And to me, this can be widely varied in different relationships at different times. Um, You know, and and there can be, there can be, um, you know, agreements that we make though, that this, this happened for me in one of my relationships, that there was, there were agreements in the relationship. um, And yet, um, the, uh, feeling was that I was being harmed, even though I had agreed to those, even though I had agreed to those, um, those, uh, I had agreed to those conditions that my partner could have sexual relationships with other people. It, 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 um, I, I, there was a lot of fighting in my own heart around that and, and a pointing out this was painful, etc. So in any case, this, this, um, even when we agree to certain conditions, I think we, we really ought to keep track of, is this causing harm for myself? <laughs> That's you know, the Buddha's enjoining to his son. Does this cause harm for myself? I was not, not somehow able to step out of it, even though it was causing harm to myself. So um, another piece I think that's important to reflect on in terms of this non-harming is to, to reflect on is there um, you know, violation of, of other aspects of wise, of ethical conduct. So does the, um, the relationship, are, are actions in the relationship um, being um, motivating not telling the truth. Our actions in the relationship um, motivating physical uh, harm. Our actions in the relationship motivating taking something which is not freely offered. And so these these things, in, you know, would include um, like rape, <laughs> you know, and um, um, lying about other relationships. And so I think we, 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 we really need to do this reflection. And I see there's a lot of, of possibility for, um, uh, what's the right word? Uh, a variety of intimate emotional relationships. 
with different expressions, different forms. And yet, I think it does require us all to look into, you know, is this creating harm? Is it creating harm for myself? Is it creating harm for another? And I think we're not also, um, you know, in this kind of reflection, um, you know, for instance, in that agreement with my partner, um, there were ways in which it felt like it was all on me because I had agreed, you know, because I had agreed to this. And so any, any distress I felt around it, it's kind of like, well, that's your karma. You know, that's your responsibility. And uh, I think in the field of practice, we also need to uh, take responsibility for um, our actions creating distress in others. Now, it might mean ending the relationship, which ultimately is what happened in this case. Um, But, um, um, you know, I I think it's it's not simply, well, I can continue in an agreement that the other person has agreed to, knowing that as causing the other person harm, even though they've agreed to it. That, that to me, is, a, is something we should, we should reflect on. So in the, um, in the uh, suttas, the, all of the aspects of wise <clears throat> all the aspects of ethical conduct wise ethical conduct are paired with um, kind of a wholesome quality that's cultivated while we engage with it and that in the in the um, sense of um, this one in the in the suttas it pairs Actually, it may not be suttas. It, it, in the, in, at least in the commentaries, it pairs um, this precept or this wise, you know, refraining from engaging in non-skillful sexual activity. It pairs that with fidelity. Um, kind of a, a kind of a honoring agreements, I guess, is really what that means. You know, fidelity means we honor agreements with other people. Um, so that is what's cultivated in, in this aspect, is this um, honoring our agreements with others. I also feel like it, it broadens to uh, cultivate integrity, an integrity of heart. And then, um, just wise livelihood, again, this one is also uh, much more I feel like we, we need to look at the broader sense of harming, non-harming, in terms of cultivating a wise livelihood. The, um, the definition of this is, again, very specific. No, actually, it's not specific. There's another place where it's specific. The, the, the basic definition of wise livelihood is... What is wise livelihood? There's a case where one having abandoned dishonest livelihood keeps his life going with wise with right livelihood. So in this case it's just about honesty dishonesty. Elsewhere it points to some specific livelihoods that one that a lay follower should not take up. Uh, and this is again this is somewhat contextual but it it broadens to our our time. Um, there, these five trades ought not to be taken up by a lay follower. Trading with weapons, trading in living beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poison. And this, if we think about these, um, um, if we think about these precepts or these, these um, occupations, um, they the trading in trading in weapons for instance does not explicitly violate that first precept of refraining from killing it does not explicitly violate taking what's not given 
It does not explicitly violate the precepts around false speech, harsh speech, etc. And so, but the Buddha is pointing to how these kinds of uh, livelihoods more generally in the culture support the non-ethical conduct. And so this is, uh, again, you know, I think we, we, we may want to just reflect on our livelihoods, first of all in terms of livelihood that does not, not uh, create or require us to engage in breaking the other aspects of the ethical section of the Eightfold Path. So doesn't require us to lie, doesn't require us to take what's not given, to steal, doesn't require us to kill, doesn't require us to um, harm through our sexuality. So that, that, that we, um, uh, we, we refrain from those, but then in addition potentially also to not engage, again, looking at the, the relational in activities that would encourage others to or facilitate, maybe facilitate others to engage in killing, stealing, lying, etc. Um, and yet, you know, and, and even at the time of the Buddha, I'm sure there were, um, there are kind of gray areas here. You know, a kitchen knife can be used as a weapon, but I'm sure that he did not incur, he, did, he wasn't speaking here about you can't sell kitchen knives. You can't sell knives that are used to cut vegetables. And so, you know, like we, we, have, the com- we have computers, you know. Uh, computers can be used both as a very, it can be used as a neutral thing, it can be used as a, as a, as a thing that's wholesome to support um, healing and community, and it can be used as a, as an unwholesome thing. And so I think, again, we have to come back to our intention in engaging. What is our purpose for it? And, you know, this, whole, this is really up right now. It feels like in, in um, especially here in Silicon Valley, you know, the whole way in which um, the kind of guidelines around Facebook, for instance, um, meant that Facebook felt like they could step back and say, well, you know, it's just a neutral platform, you know. We're not responsible for the content and all of the backlash that's coming around that. Um, so uh, this, is, this is kind of up even here. You know, it's like, is this, is this wise livelihood to create a platform that um, has such a, uh, a momentum in the direction of uh, stoking hate and, um, and, and without putting any restrictions on that. So these are, these are things to reflect on. You know, just like, can we um, look at where, and I think it, it, it gets really gray in some ways, you know. It, 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 may, not, it may not be so straightforward at times, um, but to look at where, where we are in terms of our own um, values and ethical reflections around our livelihood. So yeah, I mean, in, for, for instance, in, in the field of computers, you know, I worked for, for quite some years um, as I was transitioning from being a computer programmer to being um, to being a Dharma teacher, um, I shifted through this period where I was a, a technical writer, and there was one point where I was um, uh, I was employed by Sony, and I was writing um, documentation to support their um, their gaming software, and you know there is. Some, I mean, there's a lot of the games out there that are very violent. Um, there's also some of those games that are supportive of training. You know, the way that software was used to support training surgeons and training people to fly. So there's a lot of you know, different uses to those. And so to, to look at my own, um, my own uh, intention in there, 
It's like my intention was not to simply just, you know, earn as much money as possible, but more to begin this transition process. And um, also my wish was, you know, my wish was that this be used in a skillful way, not an unskillful way. So, yeah, these are, these are reflections, and we may have to hold some contradictions. We may have to hold some, some, some things in our heart, uh, some ways in which it's like, yeah, I know this is not being used in a skillful way. There are many ways in which this is not being used in a skillful way. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit challenging sometimes to navigate these things. I would encourage a reflection on it and an awareness not just a kind of like setting it aside and saying well it's not my it's not what I'm doing so I'm not responsible for that well in a way we are you know in the the larger stream we are contributing to the possibility of of um, things moving in in an unskillful direction and yet um Yeah, just, just what I really want to encourage is not just like trying to close down around that. I'm not holding, not having a blind eye around the ways in which we may be participating in some of this delusion in our culture. So being very aware of that. So um, just before opening it to reflections, this is a maybe, maybe a kind of a charged. Uh, topic. Um, I just want to, um, again, put in the whole context of how sila fits into the path, how this um, training in wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood supports us on the path. There's a place in, um, there's a couple teachings around the general ethical conduct and as i as i said you know when we when we engage in something that creates um affliction we feel it in our hearts we feel a kind of a resonance of ooh that didn't feel so good there's a word for this in in the pali this kind of uh heart that is our ethical compass two words actually one uh hiri which is when we think back on things we have done that have created harm, um, there's this kind of quivering in the heart that's, oh, that, that didn't quite feel right to have done that. So this is the, the quality of hearing, this reflecting back um, and thinking about ways in which we might have added harm to the world. Our heart feels that. The heart that is, is open and uh, connected feels that suffering. And likewise, the other word, otapa, is... Um, thinking into the future, things we might do, actions we might take, um, that kind of reflecting forward. If the, the actions that we um, plan to do may cause harm, we also feel that. And so it's just both reflecting back, reflecting the future. There's not a particular word for now, as far as I know, but maybe it's it's both of those together. Um, and that, that quality of the heart that is resonant when it understands its actions have hurt, it's very akin to compassion and metta. It's, it's in, in a way, it feels to me like it's a flavor of metta, of, of loving kindness, of connection, that our hearts feel this resonance, this, this, this quivering when our actions may uh, create harm. And this points to um, the, I think often when we, when we think about ethics and refraining from, from action, we, we focus actually on the refraining from part and not as much on the wholesome that is cultivated as we refrain. You know, we, we are mostly looking back in our, in our lives and thinking, oh, did I do that wrong? Did I do that wrong? And oh, am I going to do that wrong? Am I going to do that wrong? And, and we, we, we kind of maybe overemphasize in a way the, the, um, the negative, the uh, areas of 
creating harm. It's rare that we think back and said, oh, I didn't create harm there. That was a skillful action. This thing I'm thinking about doing, that's a wholesome thing. We don't tend to, to think that way. And the, um, there's a teaching in, there's a couple of teachings. One points to how engaging in um, uh, non-harming, it, it's got two things that it offers, one to the world and one to ourselves. Engaging in non-harming, we offer the gift of fearlessness to all beings around us. They need not be fearful in our company, not be fearful that we will harm them. And it also uh, uh, gives ourselves a gift of the bliss of blamelessness, that we can touch into, oh, I've not caused harm. And again, this is the piece that we don't tend to remember. I mean, if, if, we, if we remember we didn't cause harm, it's more like, oh, I didn't do a bad thing. But we don't feel the goodness of that. This is an important part and something that is actually emphasized in the teachings, to feel the goodness of non-harming. Not just to feel the absence of didn't harm somebody, phew, it's like, oh, this was a good thing. There's a story that Joseph Goldstein sometimes tells that kind of illustrates this um, tendency of our mind. Um, He talks about, he was practicing with Sayadaw Upandita, and um, um, there was a period of time in his practice where he felt like, he felt a little stuck in some ways. Like, uh, he didn't feel like he was um, seeing things new and you know and Sayadaw just was very patient with this just you know letting him come in so there was some frustration and Joseph reports some frustration in his mind around not progressing and you know Sayadaw Pandita is just like well you know this is the way it is sometimes but after some days of this Sayadaw Upandita offered him the reflection he said reflect on your sila reflect on your ethical conduct and Joseph said his first instinct was to think, what did I do wrong? But what Saira Upandita was pointing to is to reflect on the wholesomeness of your life. That can bring joy and delight. If we are actually open to how it lands to be ethical. So there's a, another teaching that's it's beautiful. Um, it's a, it starts with, um, there's two, two versions of this list. Um, it's called the lawfulness of progress. And in certain places, this list starts with faith. You know, having faith in the Buddhist teaching then inspires a kind of delight and a, a sense of engagement and moving on um, on the path. And that there's a very natural um, lawfulness of the way in which the mind moves from being caught and confused into letting go of greed, aversion, delusion. And there's another version of this list that begins with ethical conduct. And it begins like this. For one who is virtuous and endowed with virtue, and this is the word sila, for one who has sila, who's endowed with sila, there's no need for an act of will. May non-remorse arise in me. It is a natural law that non-remorse will arise in one who is virtuous. Now this, this non-remorse may not be felt. This is what I'm pointing to. Is that we need to, like, so, the, so what we tend to orient to is, it's not so much non-remorse in terms of the, the wholesome quality of it. It's more like non-remorse in terms of, oh good, didn't do a bad thing there. But it's not feeling the wholesomeness of that. And so this may need to be something that we kind of attune to. This non-remorse. And, and the other piece that's important here is no need for an act of will may non-remorse arise in me. It is a natural law that non-remorse will arise in one who is virtuous. For one free of remorse, there is no need for an act of will may gladness arise in me. It is a natural law that gladness will arise in one who is free from remorse. And again, in my own experience, it's, 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 it's more like... Um, it is, it, 
it does seem to be the case that that gladness is somehow um, very accessible when the mind orients in that direction. But my own mind needed to orient towards the wholesome, needed to orient towards, like for instance, um, um, you know, sitting with people and, and hearing, um, hearing their stories, um, I would be very calm and easeful and, you know, th- there wouldn't be a lot of reactivity there. And I often heard from people how much they felt a sense of compassion from me. And I thought, well, I'm feeling easeful here. I'm feeling balanced and I'm not feeling distressed. But I'm not feeling what I would call compassion either. And I talked to a number of people, a number of teachers about this. And several of them said something like, you know, well, you know, it's there. Don't worry about it. And it's like, well, that's not that helpful for me. <laughs> um, and then a, a teacher at some point, and you, this was years later, actually. I talked to a number of teachers about it, and it was kind of mystifying to me. Um, and at some point, a teacher said, well, you know, you're orienting towards the, the mind that is just letting go of things. He said, orient towards the connection with people. And I had an opportunity, you know, minutes later to try this. And the compassion was there. It's like the mind had been orienting in a particular direction that obscured that feeling. And so I think that there can be times that in this lawfulness of progress around engaging in ethical conduct, we may need to turn towards the non-remorse. Let yourself take that in. Let yourself take some time to reflect back on your day, not from the perspective of what did I do wrong, but where was there skillfulness? And, and see, let yourself see if that can land. There are sometimes ways in which our sense of self almost um, doesn't want to or, or feels odd about acknowledging the beautiful. Somehow we think that's um, aggrandizing ourself. And it can be at times. It can be that we're kind of, oh yeah, I'm so great. But I think we have gone in, in particular in, in the, the Western culture and that we have gone in the direction of um, not wanting to recognize and acknowledge, yes, that was wholesome. That was beautiful. That creates delight to know this being did not cause harm. So we may need to actually orient in that direction. And this goes on, I won't, I won't read the rest of it, but, but it goes on with some other um, beautiful qualities. Joy, uh, tranquility, happiness, concentration. This is a great one. It's like the, uh, the, the supportive condition for concentration is happiness. Not when the mind is happy, it's a natural movement of the mind to settle and become peaceful, become concentrated. And then that creates conditions for seeing how our minds are caught and stuck, things that, that to see through that delusion, leading onward to freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. So this to me is also a, a beautiful teaching about the centrality of how the wise um, um, ethical conduct plays in our practice. It can be a, a kind of a foundational piece that supports us moving to freedom. So we'd have some time for comments or questions or reflections. In terms of right livelihood and doing no harm, you know, the topic of 
of uh, climate change comes up again. And there's so, I mean, we all participate in the destruction that's happening. Yeah. And, and even so many things that we've done to create less harm, right? The technology, all the wonderful yep. things that we've created to make ourselves more comfortable and live longer and have more wealth have also, you know, harmed us. So it's a very difficult... So I can say, yes, in my work directly, I don't create harm, but I drive there. Yep. I have Indeed. plastics in my office. <laughs> I buy things. You know, it's... Everything, you know, we use the computer, and if we use Google, we're supporting consumerism, which is supporting in some ways, drug pushing, which is supporting overproduction. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, every, every, and then not, and the, and the use of the, the carbon imprint of the electronics is huge. So it's, it's a really difficult topic. It's to a, it's live a huge gray area. In its yes. deepest forms. Um, interpersonally is really complicated, but this feels even more complicated well it's, it's it's interpersonal with the planet we can well, say well <laughs> with the planet but with with our livelihood yes. i mean really ultimately you know we'll be harmed or we are being harmed and so it's it's um well this is this is why really i said what tough. i said around wanting people to i mean it's it's huge and and i think you know this is not new in the history of humans um uh it goes i mean it goes back I mean, this whole trajectory of how we engage, you know, it has been creating, I mean, it's like, like the, 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 the story, I, I recently read this, um, the impact that humans have had on the natural environment from the beginning has been huge. Every place that human, humans migrated to created the destruction of many, uh, species. So it is not new. And, um, you know, the fact that we understand these ripples now, you know, this is, this is, it's a great thing that we understand this. You know, I, 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 it's, it's not, it was happening at the time of the Buddha. It's not expressed in there probably because it wasn't understood. You know, it's, it wasn't understood as being you know, there's like looking around and it's like, well, this is the way it's always been. And there's, you know, even descriptions of like past lives that the Buddha describes, you know, eons and eons, previous past life, his description is present day India of his time. So it was, it, there was not this understanding of evolution and, and things, you know, so, and we have that understanding now. And so, yes, we can we can use that understanding, I think, to help us all wake up. <laughs> um, so that's what, where I pointed to really not, like, n- neither shutting down around it. Because it, it is overwhelming, you know. It does feel overwhelming. But also, to, so to look in your, in your life, okay, is this, is this something I need to consume? You know, to, to, so to look in our own uh, ways that, you know, that, that the whole consumer culture depends on us over-consuming in some ways. And so, you know, what, what is actually necessary for us? And so to, to live in alignment with that, we are still contributing. And yet, you know, that there's no easy answer. There's no easy answer, I think, except not shutting down around it, being aware of it, and then recognizing what are the choices that I can make that have less impact on this ripple effect as much as, as is possible for this being. And to continue to support the, um, uh, the education and the movement uh, in the direction of, yeah, we are harming our environment. I think it's really in only in the last 100 to 150 years that we have become so aware of this. And in the last probably 20, we've become even more aware of it. And so, you know, so this is a, this is a, this is a human waking up <laughs> and we all have to participate in that as we can, I think. 
Yeah, it's a huge, it's huge, it's a huge question. But I I really want to encourage not shutting down around it. Because it's so easy to just like, this is too much to think about, too much to take in. But notice when you're overwhelmed, you know, set it aside consciously. But, you know, come back, come back to reflecting, knowing this, this piece. Yeah. Thank you. And just a lighter side, although not, because I thought it, I was just thinking of all the ways that harm is caused in producing all sorts of things. You know how at the end of movies it says, "No animals were harmed." No animals were harmed. <laughs> and with all the Me Too stuff, one day I thought, wouldn't it be cool if they put, "No women were harmed." <laughs> <laughs> that is great. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and again, the the kind of the the. Uh, the the norms around harming essentially you know it's like the whole the whole way that people are becoming aware of how their habitual actions oh yeah that's okay actually do create harm yeah, so it's a lot of it's a it's a lot of waking up around around our habitual actions and it's true in the in the realm of uh, race relations it's true in the realm of um, um, all of the kind of oppression and privilege that you know, we we just have been not really clearly seeing how those things create harm. As we wake up to it, it's like it's everywhere. We're all participating. We're participating in the harm to the planet. We're participating in in the perpetuation of of institutions and ideas that we have grown up with, essentially. So, you know, beginning to to see that. And it's time to stop. So next week, uh, we'll move on to wise effort. So thank you. Wise effort. (laughs) That's not part of the Eightfold Path. <laughs> Interestingly, it's it's part of the precepts, but it's not part of the eightfold path. Yeah, the in, not selling intoxicants. Yeah, and so that's again, it's kind of pointing back to that, you know, not doing things that create the conditions for not being aware. So that's I think the purpose for the non intox not 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 using intoxicants. <laughs>